Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. Too many broken hearts have fallen in the river. Too many lonely souls have drifted out to sea. You lay your bets and then you pay the price. The things we do for love. The things we do for love. Communication is. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we are coming back at you this week with episode 61, The Things We Do for Love, Ed Okun. That name just... Okun? It just emanates love. And Valentine's. So we wanted to do something a little non-murderous this week. We got a little... <laughs> I can't even say it. We're going to have some... We went, we went Massacres hard. Massacres coming up. Yeah, we went pretty hard last week, too. I won't address it entirely, but we did get at least one person to reach out and get some clarifications and was very, very, very nice. We don't have to go through them all here on the podcast, but there's definitely things beyond the Goodnight Sugar Babe documentary that obviously the documentarian doesn't go into. And so obviously the person that reached out agrees that Sherry is a nightmare. So that's not the issue. <laughs> I don't think anyone is going to debate that one. <laughs> but also that there there are things in the documentary that go unsaid and you have to sometimes question the documentarian as well. So that's all we'll say. Other than that, we've gotten a pretty good reception from it. And a lot of new people who have started listening to the podcast and have joined our Facebook group, True Crime Dumpster. So we just want to thank you guys for the good positive feedback. Welcome to the dumpster. Yeah. So I thought that was going to be our lighter episode for a minute. But we I did. I purposely tried to find a crime this week that involved love and not murder because goddamn. Valentine's Day is like one of the most murderous holidays on record. Well, girls make guys crazy. Oh, is that it? I think that's it. I cracked the code. <laughs> so what's the craziest thing you've ever done for love, Kevin? I moved to California and uh, bought a house and I'm about to have a child. Um, <laughs> I would say that's the craziest fucking thing. <laughs> oh, really? The, with Absolutely. The, with, with the girlfriends of your past? I've dated women that were <laughs> related to serial killers and all that. Um, and serial killer. Pretty yeah, major yeah. one. You know. Randall Woodfield. I've been around a block and uh, I would say, yeah, definitely this is the craziest shit I'm about to get it, into. But in a good way, right? You didn't say bad crazy. Oh, okay. But yeah, the things that we do for love. For me, I didn't even think about this one. I've never done anything that crazy. Well, I married you. <laughs> that was <laughs> probably the craziest thing you've done yet. I think I think the first thing when you asked me, I said, seriously? 
That was my first response because I was really surprised you wanted to get married. I was like, I was not thinking that's where you were going with it. Well, when you find the one. Yeah. So Ed Okun not only found the one, but he found the three. And so we're going to talk about the three. (laughs) We're going to talk about this guy. And I will say that most of our information came from an American Greed episode called Young Love Goes Bust. And I believe it's from like 2014 or so. You can find it on YouTube and I'm sure anywhere. I didn't know American Greed was still a television series actually that's still on currently. I think they took a hiatus for a while, but it's it's quite a good series. It's nice to find non-murderous crimes, just just greedy, terrible people. That dude's got a really nice voice. Who, Ed Okun? No. Oh, oh, oh. The guy from the show. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like the it's Unsolved like Michelle, Mysteries Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. It, yeah, he does have a great voice. And I think he's done American Green. I think he's done at least one or two other crime shows as well. But yeah, people who do crime show voiceovers actually have wonderful voices. I wonder why, if that's how they got the job. <laughs> voiceover people probably get jobs because they have a nice voice maybe so we're gonna talk about ed okun who was a chubby kid from toronto if he was let's see i'm trying to do his age here they didn't give me a birthday i think he was born in the early 50s yeah he was born in the early 50s and he was a chubby kid from toronto and he only reaches five five as his adult height which is totally fine I see a very big truck in this guy's future. But it does give him a complex. (laughs) There you go. And on top of the kind of short man complex it gives him, he also doesn't like to work, but likes things and success, which is what a childhood friend. I mean, who doesn't? Sounds like a fat kid. (laughs) So at 21, he meets and marries the one, the first one. The first one. Yeah. Carol May, who is 19 at the time. And she said that he seemed really ambitious and eager and she really thought she was marrying like this successful, awesome dude. And her parents really loved him, too. So they stayed in Toronto and he tries to become a music producer. Can you think of a band that came out of Toronto? Um, well, there's one called Razor that I heard is pretty good. <laughs> Do you think that he could just manage Razor and make enough money? I wouldn't want to fuck over Razor. Oh, yeah, for sure. You get some shotgun justice. Yeah. So, yeah, he tries to be a music producer in Toronto. That doesn't work out. And then so he becomes a quote unquote real estate investor, which is you'll see can be a legitimate job, but he doesn't legitimize it. I think his idea of investing in real estate just means buying a lot of it and living in it and not doing anything with it. That's my kind of investing. Yeah. So he talked his in-laws into sending him a lot of money to invest, and I believe they took it out of their retirement. This guy, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a real nice guy. So immediately he bought seven to eight cars in the first few years. Like, what were Alfa? What's the Alf- Alfa Romeo? Yeah, I think that was one of them. And Aston Martin and a BMW and a Mercedes, like just really high-end cars. So some junkers. Yeah. And then he bought his first yacht. We're going to hear about a couple of his yachts. And this one was called The Endless Summer. And it was equipped with a captain, which is weird that yachts come with captains. Does the captain feed you? I don't know. I think they just navigate places. But I don't know if you can. It seems like you almost can't have a yacht without a captain unless you are a captain. Have you seen how big yachts are? Uh, Yeah. 
I think you want someone that knows well, how yeah, to yeah, drive yeah. a boat. Yeah. So he would take it down from the Canadian territory down to Florida with his captain. So after three to four years of marriage to Carol, he changes and he is very angry. He's no longer the jovial chubby dude she knows and he yells at everyone. So she realizes, you know what? I want out of this. And she starts divorce proceedings, realizing at this point when, you know, the papers are being drawn up that he is over. And this is like 70s money. This is not today's money. It actually worth it was worth it. <laughs> But he's over one and a half million dollars in debt. So like at age like 24. Okay. Uh, both with personal and business loans. And you're thinking, why would he need a loan if he's got all this like m investment money from her in-laws, right? So at 22, Carol, she's never had a job before because he's kind of, you know, let her believe that he's this wheeling, dealing, you know, real estate investor. And... She co-signed on things that defaulted to her parents. Oh. Ouch. I know. So this is when they all find out that Ed didn't actually invest that money. He just spent it. <laughs> That's my kind of investing. So Carol's dad pursues criminal charges, but then Ed threatens them and the family backs off because they're Canadian. They're probably, oh, sorry. Sorry, eh? <laughs> Ed runs away to the U.S. to start over and they don't go looking for him. They don't. It's crazy. So I don't know if they were able to like. That's a far ride on a horse. But I mean, they I it, it bums me out to think that they never retain their money again. You know what I mean? Little Mountie joke for you guys. 32 years later at the age of 54. So they just kind of fast forwarded 32 years in the episode. I couldn't find much in those intervening years at all. So I'm going to go with the American Greed episode here. But 32 ye years later at the age of 54, wife number two, which I don't know if he married her. Like, I don't know if they were married for a really long time or for a very short time. But nonetheless, she's not named anywhere. So I I'll, I'll let her keep her peace. Ed Okun is the owner of a company called Investment Opportunities of America, which buys, sells, and manages shopping malls in industrial buildings. So he actually is an investment real estate person at this time, for real, for real. For real, for real. Yeah. So essentially, he found undervalued properties, flipped them, and then sold them quickly for a profit. But then he would keep ones that were lucrative and just run shopping malls and industrial buildings, like basically contracting them out, I'm assuming. Ed likes big boats. <laughs> I like big boats and I just can't lie. I didn't have any transition from one sentence to the next. <laughs> I've got five of boats. So Ed likes big boats and he cannot lie. Well, at least about the boats. <laughs> he actually does like big boats. He really does. You're going to hear about some boats. And he attends a boat show in Fort Lauderdale in February of 2005, where he meets Simone Bellone, uh, Simone Bolani. I want to yeah. say Bolani. And she's a blonde Brazilian bombshell in her mid-20s. She was one of the models showing off her boats. <laughs> He falls in love with her and immediately files for divorce from his second wife. Like, like literally days after I believe he meets her. Isn't that crazy? He's got to get that. He's got to take her to for a trip on the boat. Pony baloney. The baloney pony. The Simone baloney. <laughs> I don't know. Someone's going to eat baloney. That's all I know. 
So Ed is seemingly on top of the world, but underneath the facade was a different story. He was strapped for cash and was losing money on all of his investment properties throughout the U.S. And they span from like Louisiana to like Indiana, which I don't even think that's that huge of a span. But his offices were in Richmond, Virginia, which is where we're going to meet his assistant that I'll talk about in just a minute. So it's sketchy as fuck at this point. Unbeknownst to him, a federal task force begins to investigate his monetary movements. And this federal task force involves an assistant U.S. attorney, Michael Dry, a postal inspection service, the IRS, and the FBI. You fucked. Yeah, because it's a lot. We're talking in the millions and millions and millions of dollars. And part of it, I think, too, was prompted by the fact that the divorce is happening. And he is ordered to pay $8 million to his wife. And I think that they know that he doesn't have any money, but like he it's, but it, he kind of does, you know? And so I think they're kind of watching to see how he's going to pay the settlement. Gotcha. And every day he doesn't pay the $8 million, he's fined $25,000 a day. She got a good lawyer. Set in the trap. Yeah. So in the meantime, he's sharing his new girlfriend with lavish gifts and anything she wants, including a hair salon. Oh, I don't know. I think this is after they're married, but he buys her a hair salon so she doesn't have to wait for appointments. That's <laughs> reasonable. So looking for money, he finds a solution. OK, and you're going to have to help me with this. So. There's this Boston-based company called the Atlantic Exchange Company. And throughout the episode, I'm going to call it AEC because everything has like an acronym here. But they are a qualified intermediary. So what a qualified intermediary does, which is a QI, it holds money for real estate investors who want to defer capital gains taxes. So QIs hold money for 180 days, basically. I think the IRS person describes it as a gigantic piggy bank waiting for transactions. And the people who go to QIs to get money held, they're called depositors, technically, but I'm going to call them clients throughout the episode. So they just basically hold on to your money until what? Until they can invest it. So the idea is that like it got so it got you confusing. invest your own money. So you put your money in, they hold. They don't. It. They don't, you don't invest it, but yeah, you deposit money into a QI, and, and a the, QI holds it for 180 days while you find somewhere to deposit it or to like invest, invest it, it in. yourself. So you yeah. can kind of skip a tax. It's a tax loophole, right? Yeah, so I think it's also for potentially inherited money. They went into a couple of stories. Like one woman, she inherited money from her sister who had died of cancer. And she knew she was going to use that chunk of money to invest in like a rental property. So she basically, as a way to avoid capital gains taxes, she actually puts the money in a QI for 180 days i guess to show good faith it's like an escrow account right to show good faith that like you're not immediately trying to go out there and buy money i guess after you inherit it or come across it and then after 180 days you're allowed to at like a fraction of the cost you're allowed to then invest it but you just can't take the cash out because you'll get taxed right yeah Gotcha. And so one woman said, I think she put in like $300,000 or something. And she said she essentially saved 
or thought she was going to save $50,000 basically in capital gains taxes right. by not touching it right away after she inherited it, I guess. Okay. That that seems to kind of make sense, right? Barely. I mean, that's why we're who we are and not QIs. That's why I play death metal. That's a bit about QIs. He gets a loan to buy AEC, the Atlantic Exchange Company, which is a QI, for $4 million. And he gets immediate access to the $170 million that this QI is holding right. for depositors or clients, right? So, so this place that he buys, they do exchange funds, right? That's what QIs do. I believe so. That's what the term is called, an exchange yeah. fund. So exchange fund is also known as a swap fund and it's an arrangement between certain shareholders of different companies that pool their shares together and let oh an so investor... it's not just it's not just individuals using this it's also like people pulling together money for like businesses potentially so this is another way around taxes for this rich people so like so this investor that <laughs> they want to exchange the holding of large single stock for smaller units in the entire pool's portfolio. So they're basically like trading, say like a Tesla stock or a Bitcoin or whatever for like a bunch of different smaller things that the... So they use this company to hold that money? That's what these exchanges are. Okay. And it's... I, I st still doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but... But that's why who we are. <laughs> yeah. But because there's no actual sale of stocks or anything like that it's not regulated there's it's a swap or an exchange so there's no tax paid yeah and there's it's not regulated qis aren't right. regulated yeah. because it's not supposed to be an investment thing it's not investment it's just a holding it's a holding tank basically right so these big investors use these exchange funds as a way to get around taxes skirt yeah capital yeah. gains tax so it's individuals but it's also like potentially like companies and stuff like that basically when he buys this business, there's $170 million laying in the account of the business he bought. That is literally people's and businesses' money. Yeah, like people's like retirements and stuff like that. Assisting him is this woman we're going to hear from a few times. Her name's Laura Coleman. She's a former paralegal who kind of becomes his, I, I think, chief financial officer, CFO. And she definitely is not totally innocent in all of this, but she plays, I think she plays ignorant, which I think a lot of lawyers and like right-hand people do to corrupt bosses if they want to be complicit, I guess. But she heads his Richmond office, which is where I guess his base operation is, even though he's not there. Essentially, she started wiring bits of the $170 million across private bank accounts all over the U.S., so she just starts dividing the money up so that like it doesn't look like he's just spending directly from this piggy bank. They're deferring all the money to all these different personal bank accounts across the U.S. so that he can just draw from the personal bank accounts. She's covering his tracks. Exactly. So it looks like money is going places, but then there's no paper trail after it because it's harder to get access to personal bank accounts, of course, right? So he's able to then just pull money from the bank accounts. And so there's not as much of a paper trail for like, I don't know, the new yachts or jets he's going to buy. And again, like I said, qualified intermediaries, there are rules, but no one's watching, right? It's not a regulated thing. So essentially he was taking money in escrow 
and using it to pay bills and fund his new life. So the day after purchasing the business, he wrote a check for $8 million to his ex-wife so he could stop paying that $25,000 fine per day, right? And he immediately used $4 million from the QI to pay back the loan so he didn't have any more interest to pay on it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this because guy's his got thing, some big old balls. So this his thing too is that it's not like he received that hundred or the business received the hundred and seventy million all on one day. It's staggered. So every hundred and eighty days he has to come up with the money that the person put in or the business put in. And so it's staggered enough to the point where he doesn't have to give a hundred and seventy million back all at once. So he's constantly borrowing from this big honeypot. Right. Borrowing. <laughs> I'd say that with big air quotes. So like I said, he met Simone in February, and it's November around this time when he's doing all this AECQI stuff. So eight days after buying the business, he uses $4.1 million to buy a mansion on Hibiscus Island, which is an island off the coast of Florida, and he uses a small... $8.6 million towards the purchase of his 131-foot yacht. Yeah. It's got a full staff, I believe, seven or eight people to manage this monstrosity. And it is fully furnished with cherry oak or cherry wood or whatever. It's really, it does not look, it does not look like a boat. On the inside, it looks like a palatial estate. He names it after his now fiance Simone. And the next month, by December of 2005, they are married. I've seen, if you want to believe American Greed or MegaYachtNews.com. <laughs> I prefer MegaYachtNews.com. <laughs> the wedding cost anywhere between 121000 to $200,000. What a cheap bastard. I know. Seriously. I think did ours... they have it on the yacht? Uh, no, I don't think no they did. No one's allowed on the fucking yacht. Yeah. Just baloney. He does business on the yacht. I bet he does. <laughs> so even the Pomeranian, I believe a Pomeranian and her other dog were also dressed up as the bride and groom as well. And I think the Pomeranian's gown cost a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> at the wedding, they announced a baby boy on the way, which I don't know why you would announce at your wedding, but it's like, whatever, you know, you do you. And like I said, he buys her everything she wants at this point, including that salon. Well, he's a short, fat guy with a hot blonde wife. He has to buy her everything. Yeah, I mean, why do you think they're together <laughs> otherwise? So at the end of 2005, he has spent... Are you ready? Uh, I am sitting down. $55 million. Uh, I don't even know what that means. I know. He started getting to the point where new clients couldn't cover the cost of what he needed to give back to the old accounts. Yeah, so people are trying to get their money that this and he hasn't he's been able to give them their money back at this point because he has enough so in basically holdings. when he when the money starts running out he buys another one of yeah, these yeah. qis so, so with the cash flow problem what he does is he buys another qi right called sos which that seems like a little foreshadowing there eh? <laughs> i know it's got like a longer name but that's the acronym i'm gonna stay with and and so he buys it from an attorney named Todd Pajonas, and he ends up being kind of significant in it. And what he also does, which is interesting, too, is that whenever he buys a business from someone, he employs that person then, too. 
So Todd Pajonas, he gives him the position of CEO for what he calls the 1031 tax group. So he makes this umbrella corporation that houses all the QIs because I think at this point, Ed Okun is like, yo, I'm just going to start collecting QIs. He's juggling one too many balls. Yeah. So... All of his ball juggling happens under the umbrella of the 1031 tax group that Todd Pajonis is the CEO of. So he uses QIs to pay for his failing businesses and buy things for his wife. What are some of the things that he buys, you ask? Well, three jets. Why do you need three? So you can have dog fights. Come on now. (laughs) He buys every luxury car you can think of and luxury condos and homes across the U.S., Pajonis warns him that they are losing money and that they are one transaction away from quote unquote oblivion. That's where I like to live my life. (laughs) That's how low the reserves are. So what's Ed's reaction? I mean, my reaction would be like, fuck, right? But Ed's reaction is (laughs) he buys a $10 million lakefront home in New Hampshire That's his reaction to, hey, dude, you're running out of money. Sounds like a nice place to blow your head off. And $136,000 diamond necklace for Simone. And you can't have a necklace without a ring. So he buys an $86,000 ring to go with it. So he literally spends a quarter million dollars on jewelry. Nothing for the Pomeranian? You know. What a prick. (laughs) And then to kind of just seal the deal. He buys an $800,000 helicopter. (laughs) That seems cheap. I know. Compared to everything else. Yeah. I mean, that's like two necklaces. It wasn't even made out of gold. Yeah. It was, it was cool looking though. I mean, it's a fucking helicopter. Yeah. So how, so to, again, to keep funding this lifestyle, how many more QIs does he buy? Three more. (laughs) What the fuck's money anyway? I know. And so he uses the money from the new QI to basically pay off the loans. And this whole time he's telling people who were working for him, like his the Coleman woman in Richmond and Todd Bajonis, that, yeah, I've gotten legal advice for this. It's all above water because I'm paying it all back. Yeah. So Pajonis decides to kind of sound the alarm. He doesn't like blow the whistle, but he sounds the alarm. <laughs> I've got a question. Yes. Where is the FBI and all these people following this fucker They're just around? watching through the window and they can't hear the meetings, I guess. They're like, oh my God, this guy is fucking going off. Let's see what he does next. So yeah, Pajonis knows that shit's going to go down. So he actually forces Ed to sign a promissory note and they have this meeting on the Simone yacht, not on his wife. But yeah, they have a meeting on the Simone yacht and Ed is not happy with Pajonis. And luckily Pajonis is able to secure himself like a, a severance package before all, because he knows the shit's going to hit the fan, you know? And so he has a really nice severance package and basically quits at this point. Yeah, later. Yeah, he's just like... He signed, so he covered his ass big time. Like he's an attorney. So he got a severance package worth a million dollars. And then he also had him sign a promissory note saying, I promise to pay back everything I've taken out. So then he, he laters. And then he pulls the fire extinguisher, uh, fire alarm on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. 
So at this point, there's this dude named Eric Perkins, who is a lawyer at AEC, and he is severely lied to as well. <laughs> Duh. So he inv- he begins to investigate because he's like, I'm sketched out by this guy. And along with other legal people, he makes this really intense memo and tells Ed, hey, dude, you're breaking the law. I looked into it. Turns out you are definitely a criminal. <laughs> what do you mean I can't just take a bunch of people's money and spend it on fucking whatever the fuck? Yeah. So Ed wants him fired, but instead Perkins quits because he just wants to get the fuck out of there. And he he's like, this is dirty and I don't want to be a part of it. So Ed is like, well, I'm going to get other legal advice. And they came to the same exact conclusion. And this memo and then a third opinion. Yeah. So the three lawyers he's gotten opinions from, one that he sought out and two that work for him, all said, you are going to most likely be prosecuted for criminal charges. I'm going to hire the magic eight ball instead of you guys. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Maybe to ask again later. Yeah. <laughs> Future uncertain. But yeah, so it doesn't matter whether it's legal advice within his company or out of his company. They all come to the same conclusion, which is he is a criminal. So at this point, oh, this like hurts. He owes over $120 million to customers' accounts. And this is money that's spoken for. This isn't just like he's got, you know, an offshore bank account with this money in it. Th- he bought things with it. Like he's Baloney. got. Yeah. Bull- <laughs> And not only does he have that much money out that he can't pay back super readily, but he starts not be able to make payroll. Because remember, he still owns all these like malls that are like losing like $900,000 a month. Like he just holds on to things that are worth nothing. He's got too many things, I'd say. Yes. A lot of people say that the breaking point, which I would say that the breaking point was when he was born, but the breaking point came in 2007. So at this point, his employees are not getting their paychecks, basically. That's how like out of it he is. They find out that he went to the Bahamas and had a six-person dinner party where he was paying over $1,000 per shot of fancy cognac. And the final bill for six people came out to $56,000. And this is when he's not being able to make payroll. Like people find out about this and I think people quit or pissed off, whatever, right? He knows that's all just going to come out of your butt, right? (laughs) $56,000? Yeah, that's just future poop. Yeah, exactly. At this point, he's like, shit, I got to buy another QI. I don't know how many he fucking has at this point, but he buys another. Neither does he. Yeah. He buys another QI from a woman named Janet DeShiel. And she's significant because she doesn't only sound the alarm, but she blows the whistle. Thanks. He buys her QI and then puts her in charge of all the QIs, which I think is kind of weird. But I whatever. think it's a way to like keep them from like being oh, like, oh, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah, and yeah, then that you're a part like, of it. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. The alarm, whatever. So it's funny how he woos her over. So he invites her over to the so. Simone, and he's got this framed picture of Sly and the Family Stone, <laughs> like on a table. You were sleeping during this part. <laughs> And she's like, what's up with the picture of Sly and the Family Stone? And one, I think it was his assistant or maybe one of the yacht members or some or yacht crew was like, oh, yeah, just so you know, Ed O'Coon, he played the drums for them at Woodstock. 
Like, that's how impressive he is. And she's like, wow, this guy's really cool. Like, he's got this cool yacht. He played the drums for Sly and the Family Stone at Woodstock. And at this point... This they had is, a drummer? I don't know. So at this point, she they cut back to Carol May, his first wife, and she's just laughing. She's like, that never fucking happened, you know? <laughs> she's just like, whatever. Bullshitter's so, gonna bullshit. So Janet figures out what he's doing pretty quickly because she's a fucking sharp cookie. And instead of totally just blowing the whistle right away, she kind of, because she's in it now, you know, and that's, he's done that on purpose. She opens a secret bank account to put the new client's money in that Ed can't touch. That's fucking smart. Because she's like, Touché. hey, if you're spending client's money, I'm just going to open a secret bank account to put the money so you can't touch it. So she figured after a while, the money would start running out. He wouldn't have access to it anymore. And so she essentially stops the flow of money. So she figures, you know, he'll realize that the flow of money has stopped and he will start to liquidate his possessions and pay back the money he owes. Right? Right? Wrong. So what do you think he does? Buys more QIs. Yeah. So he buys another QI and <laughs> he buys another keyword, another Gulfstream jet. <laughs> Are we up to three now? This is four. Holy shit, buddy. I know, unless he got rid of one of the other ones. I, I don't think he gets rid of things. Do they race each other? What? Why? I don't know. So the new QI he buys, are you ready for this? You know how much money they have in holdings? No, I don't. $900 million to $1 billion. Yeah, that should pay and some so, bills. So Janet is like, fuck. He's going to spend all of that. Fuck yeah. So after four months of working for him, she's like, I'm done. She goes to D.C. and she blows a whistle. She like walks into the FBI building and she's like, I need to blow a whistle. Do you have a whistle I can blow? <laughs> a baloney flavored whistle. So they outfit her immediately because he's already under investigation. They outfit her immediately with hidden cameras and microphones. And she goes back and she's like, hi, guys. So what's all the illegal stuff happening here? And and everyone just lets loose. Like, I mean, like, I think at this point, no one doesn't know what's happening, you know, because they're all getting paid fairly well. I'm sure that the Coleman woman and other employees, like the reason that they're not blowing the whistle on him is that they're getting decent paychecks, you know? That's how you keep people's mouths shut. So in April of 2007, finally, the feds with guns raid everything. And at this point, I can't even name everything because he's got the Richmond office for all the mall stuff. He's got all of these buildings across the United States. He's got all these investment, quote unquote, investment real estate properties across the U.S. He's got these QIs scattered across boats, the country. Helicopters. He's got boats and all kinds of things. So in the end, over 250 people lost their life fortunes because of him. That's fucking terrible. Yeah. So Ed hides at his Hibiscus Island home saying he'll pay it all back. Like, oh, just leave me alone. I'm figuring things out. I'm having $20,000 shots of tequila and so, um, eating. So just hold up. So police get a call from a pawn shop and they find that he's trying to pawn $1 million worth of jewelry. He could have sold a house. But anyways, uh, he's maybe pawning, two planes. <laughs> he's pawning one million dollars worth of jewelry for two hundred thousand dollars. And the feds think he's preparing to flee. So they arrest him and at his Hibiscus Island residence. 
at this point, he's still convinced he's done nothing wrong and that he is actually the victim here. Ah, the perfect crime. So since 2008, settlements from bankruptcy and class action lawsuits from Ed's banks have gotten clients over 70% of what was owed back to them. So that's good. It did take, you know, some time. Better than nothing. Yeah. And then there's this client that they talked to a lot named Bonnie Schloss in the documentary and or not the documentary, the episode. And she meets, she's kind of made it her life goal to make sure that QIs are regulated. There's some oversight for them. Sounds like there might need to be. <laughs> yeah. And so because she, she doesn't want this to happen to future people. So she meets with members of Congress regularly to get stricter regulations for QIs. Um, his assistant, Laura Coleman, she pleads guilty to conspiring to commit wire and mail fraud. And she gets five years in federal prison. I think going to Congress is probably the last place to go if you want to like get shit done. <laughs> if you want honest work done, the government is not on your side. Just going to well, throw that one out Well, there. the not government was not on her side either. So that's she's tr- she's trying to make something happen because she's really she wants to make sure that it, this doesn't happen to anyone else. So Ed is convicted on all accounts and the surprise witness at his trial was his first wife that he abandoned, you know, over 35 years prior to establish that this is a pattern. Like this is who Ed is. He is a fraudster. He should never be let out of jail. And so in 2009, he's sentenced. Are you ready? Let's hear it. To 100 years. 100? 100 years. He would be 158 years old by the time he got out. <laughs> Which is a way to say he's 58 when he goes to jail. Ah, thank you for clearing that one up. <laughs> and the entire time he's in jail, he's like, I'm 100%. I'm the victim. I'm the one that, you know, I, I've been victimized, blah, blah, blah. Right? Yeah, he's trying to wheel and deal on the commissary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So Ed died on April 9th, 2020, due to heart problems at the age of 69. And then a couple updates. According to megayachtnews.com, the 131-foot Simone was signed over to a court-appointed 1031 TG trustee. Don't know what all that means to pay back clients. The eight-person crew was still being paid about $25,000 a month to stay on board to insure for due to insurance reasons and to prevent the value of the yacht from decreasing. And so Simone, the yacht, not the person, is now known as Brazil and was available for purchase in 2009 for only $11.5 million. There's yeah, a whole that's... section of mega yacht news for like yachts for sale from criminals. <laughs> Who else is buying yachts? I think only criminals. Yeah, it's kind of a criminal thing. So the only thing I could find about Simone in a simple Google search is a very cute dachshund's Instagram. So (laughs) she's had some work done. Her name is Simone Baloney. She lives in New York and you can follow her at Simone the Hot Dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got. That's all you need. Yeah. So, I mean, Ed's dead. And Uh, Miss Baloney turned into a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for our show today. You know, those are the things you do for love. Those are, if you really love somebody, you're willing to rip off like $50 million for them. Yes. So I guess I don't love you that much, Amy. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, you can join our Facebook group at True Crime Dumpster. 
it, you can find that probably on Facebook, I reckon. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all those things. True Crime Dumpster. TC Dumpster on Twitter. Whatever. We're the dumpster. There's not many of us around. Yeah. So, Just look at a dumpster. We're there. Yeah. So until next time, happy Valentine's Day and think about all the crazy things you do for love. And we'll see you next time as we continue talking out the trash. Bye-bye. Bye now. <laughs>